you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 12. Over the last couple of years, we've been journeying through the Gospel of John when it comes to taking the Lord's Supper together. And so each time we kind of come back into this, it's, it's been some stretch of time, some period of time since we've been together and studied John. And so I want to refresh, I want to remind you of kind of where we left off. Now today we're going to be in chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. First half is going to be 27 through 31, then we'll pick up the second half when we roll through that. But right before we pick up our passage, Jesus gives this really clear indication of kind of his coming death. And Justin alluded to it earlier. It's actually right before that. In verse 23, it says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, and I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies and remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so Jesus was pointing to his death in that day. He's pointing to the fact that he's getting ready to surrender his life, and everybody around him is really struggling in some sense to understand what's going on. They're struggling in some, some sense to understand this, this change, this turn that his teaching has taken. Now, with inside this little setting here where he's got the disciples, he's got some, some members of the religious establishment, Pharisee scribes, and he's also got his disciples there. So he's got this, this kind of very ecumenical group in some sense, right? You got Greeks, you got Jews, you got these guys who would be the, the first Christians. And so in the midst of this, he's offering this really difficult teaching, this really difficult thing to understand about himself. And look what happens in verse 27 where we pick up this morning. He says, now is my soul troubled. And we read that, and and this is just one of these types of verses that's short, and so we read it so incredibly quickly, and we don't actually end up ever focusing on what he's communicating to us. Because you say, now is my soul troubled, and then you move right into this conversation that Jesus begins to have with the Father. But stop, listen. In this understanding where he's describing it, it says, my soul is troubled. A more appropriate way of translating this understanding is completely vexed, absolutely devastated, and brought to the very end of my rope. You see, for Jesus to describe and talk about his coming death wasn't this passe manner where intellectually he knew these things had to come to be and he had resolved himself to impassionately move through the proceedings. See, the closer it got to his passion, the closer it got to his death, the greater frequency with which he referred to it, the greater toll it took on him physically. This is such a beautiful reminder we see in the Gospel of John of Jesus's, of his divinity, where his divinity meets his humanity. His humanity in this moment, he is wrecked and devastated. The author of the book of Hebrews really describes well the role of the Son in Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Now listen to this. With loud cries and tears. With loud cries and tears, he offered up prayers and supplications to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So Jesus, perfectly sinless, never knew, never experienced the separation between he and the Father. Never knew sin. 
never knew what plagues you and I, never knew all the, the sorrow that kind of goes with our sin, being separated from God because of our sin. Jesus never knew that. He had never experienced that. And so in this moment, in his mind, he's anticipating the separation. He's anticipating, friend, all of your sin, past, all of your sin, present, all of your sin in the future, coming to weigh on him. He is anticipating the wrath of God, which should have been poured out on you, which was about to be poured out on him. Have you ever suffered on behalf of somebody else? What's normally our posture in that? If you have kids, that's a quick answer. One brother comes in and says, oh, you'll never guess what Timmy did. And Timmy comes in and says, mom, you got to be kidding me. I didn't do that. He tried to stab me in the eye. What, is, what, what does he see there? He is unwilling to suffer for his brother. But what do we see in Jesus? He, he comes to it and he recognizes he's not suffering for himself. He's suffering for you. So he's not looking at it and saying, oh, I deserve this in some sense because I've done some wrong. I'm, I'm, I deserve this in some sense because all humanity has fallen in Adam. I deserve this in some sense because of this or because of that. In this moment, he understands that he deserves it not, that we deserve all of God's wrath poured on us, but because of the love of God and his mercy displayed and the beneficence and the kindness of Jesus, he's willing to take on all of it, all the wrath that was supposed to come to you. All the separation, all the punishment for your sins, for your waywardness, for your disinterest, for your apathy, for your pursuits of goodness, for your idolatry, for all the other things that reign in your heart instead of allowing God to reign first. Jesus willingly prepared himself to endure the cross. But it's not like he skips into it. It's not like he says a spoonful of sugar is going to help this to go down. In the midst of this, Jesus is understanding. He is besought with grief, and he is sorrowful. He suffers. But look at his steely resolve in the midst of this suffering. He says, now is my soul troubled. And then he asks this question. He says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And we recognize that in Matthew 26, later on, Jesus asked God that the cup could pass from him. But in this moment, what he wants us to understand is that the plan and the directionality of his ministry, the plans and purposes of God, are only fully realized in Jesus' faithful obedience. So over the course of Jesus' ministry, in chapter 5 of John, in chapter 6 of John, in chapter 7 of John, one of the things we hear him say over and over and over again is, not your will but mine. We see it in his actions, we hear it in his words. He submits himself to the will of the Father. And so he willingly goes into this. And so he asks this question, what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? Listen to his response, his, his response to his own question. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus understood what it is to be a man of the hour. Jesus understood what it is to be a man with a task ahead of him. And friends, can I tell you this morning that the task on the heart of our Lord and Savior was the redemption, the salvation of humanity. And some of you this morning find yourselves fully embracing this, welcoming this, having received the forgiveness of God, and others of you still stand far off. It's not for me, it's not what I want, it's not what I desire. I have this in my life I would like to live. I have this in my life I'd like to do. I have this sin in my life that I refuse to give up. I, you see, I refuse to label anything of my life as sin because I'm the one who evaluates what I do and what I say and what happens. 
Can I tell you that if that's you this morning, that that did not stop the love of God sending his son to die for you in your rebellion? Ephesians 2 gives us this picture that all of us were saved in the midst of our rebellion. None of us were saved in the midst of our perfection. That even you, as you sit here still today in your rebellion, know no other genesis other than the beginning of God's love in Jesus Christ. You know no other beginning for God's love other than that brought to you in the person of Jesus Christ. He says, to this purpose I have come. And look at his selfless call. He says, Father, glorify your name. Can you imagine? You're preparing to suffer unbelievably. You're you're preparing to be separated, to have everything changed that you understand. And in the midst of this, he has this selfless cry. He says, God, be glorified. God, would you glorify your name in this? Jesus is Jesus is completely captivated, caught up in this understanding that it is his desire that God be glorified. And so that's what he's pursuing. That's what he's seeking. Look at the last part of verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven. And this is the third occurrence of this. It happens at his baptism. It happens at his glorification. This is the third incidence of God speaking. It says, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Now what's God communicating? What's he trying to say to us? You see, he's communicating in some sense that he has already been glorified. He has already been glorified in the ministry of Jesus. You see, over the course of Jesus' ministry, his, his kind of pursuit of, of allowing others to exalt themselves over him, his humble ministry, his teaching ministry, the ways that he hasn't pursued anything that's been laid at his feet, when people sought to make him king, when people sought to make him ruler over them, what did Jesus do? He completely abandoned the scene. He, he made it so that these things couldn't come to be. He was captivated by the understanding that he is on a mission not for himself, but he is on mission for God. And so God looks at the, the overarching ministry of Jesus from birth to this point in his life, and he says, I have already glorified. In essence, he echoes his refrain from earlier, you are my son, in you I am well pleased. He echoes that refrain. He says, and I will glorify it. What's he pointing to? Clearly in that refrain, what he's pointing to is the fact that Jesus will submit himself to the point of death, and that in his death, he will be raised from dead by the Father, and being raised from the death, he will be exalted into the heavens forevermore. He has glorified it. And he will glorify it. It's the promise of the Father. Now I want you to understand something, and this is why I said earlier, this is the situation, this is kind of where they find themselves. And so you've got Greeks, you've got Jews, you've got disciples, you've got all these people kind of variously gathered around, hearing in the midst of this conversation. And this is their response. Verse 29 says, The crown stood there and heard it. And some that heard it said that it had thunders, and others that an angel had spoken to him. And so this is kind of how we see this group breaking out. This is kind of how we see this group breaking out. And so this loud voice, this loud thing echoes from the heavens. And so you have these people that are resistant at any point of of seeing anything, any spiritual construct. They don't want to give credence to anything spiritual. They don't want to give credence to a higher power. And so what do they say? Loud boom, thunder. Loud boom is thunder. And so this is, this is kind of where some of us see ourselves. 
we are resistant to following God. Why? Because he's not this thing that's easily understood. He's not this, this thing we're able to hold in our hands and understand. And so when, when thunder happens outside, this is something rational. This is something that your experience validates. This is something you see over and over again. And when thunder happens, what? It's completely normal. And some of us hear thunder and we think, yes, rain. We think rain, especially in the summertime in Texas. And so for them to describe what they've heard as being thunder is just saying this is mundane, this is ordinary. It is nothing exceptional. It is nothing out of the ordinary. This is something completely in the main of our existence and of our understanding. And so we recognize that they get it, that they don't get it. We recognize that they miss it, pointing at the rationality, seeking to make it completely understandable and non-threatening. And some of us today, that's the reason we don't come to God, because he is wholly other and different. You only want the, the calm. You only want the easily understood. You want that thing that you're able to move and make in your own image and move and make in something that's simple for you, something controllable. And so you militate all, against all references to submitting yourself. You move against all things that call you to submit yourself to him. Or maybe you find yourself on the other end of the spectrum. The God that Christianity purports is too wonderful, too out there, too all-powerful. There's something about him that you don't quite like, and so you miss it on the other end of the spectrum. And so where the uh, one group is saying it's rational, it's thunder, the other comes out and says we're fully comfortable with spiritual, but what we say is that it was an angel. It was an angel speaking. See, because they're comfortable with that. In their culture at that day, they had a hierarchy of angels that had really been created since the writing of Malachi until the coming of Jesus, there were those in, in, in that culture that had created this whole hierarchy of angels. The study of angels had really grown and developed in that day. And so they looked at it and said, this is something we know. This is something we understand. This is something we are comfortable with. But for an all-powerful creator, God, to speak to us, it's terrifying because in some sense it validates the ministry of Jesus. If it's thunder or an angel, it gives no validity to the ministry of Jesus. It's just a freak event that happened. And I think we see that because look at Jesus' response here. Jesus says in verse 30, This voice has come for your sake and not mine. He wants them to recognize, he wants them to understand that the communication of the Father is doing nothing to, to buttress and enhance Jesus, but it's doing everything to communicate to these people the validity of Jesus' ministry. And so he writes to them, he, and he, or he says to them, he's communicating to them that this voice is for their sake and not his, and they missed it. Can I tell you this morning that as you sit here, believer and unbeliever, that God's word to you is for your good. His word to you is for your good, it is for your life, it is and has the ability, the power to transform your life, to change your heart, if you would let it. If you'd not miss on the far side of rationality, or the far other side of spiritual experience that, that bypasses God for who he is, and he is who he has revealed himself to be within the 66 books of scripture. Look what he says, finishing up this section in verse 31. He says, now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. With the coming and enthronement of Jesus, with him ruling and reigning as king on the basis of God exalting him after his death, 
raising him up in his resurrection and exalting him to God's right hand. In the basis of this, Satan is cast out. Satan is cast out. John 16, 11 gives us this picture and this understanding that the Holy Spirit is limiting the role and effectiveness of Satan in the here and now. He's limiting it. Just as Satan is dethroned, so too Jesus is enthroned. The ruler of this world is cast out. But look at the first part of that. He says, now is the judgment of this world. What Jesus is communicating to us is is decidedly clear. Jesus is communicating to us that all of humanity is separated into one of two camps. And they're separated into those camps on the basis of their belief or rejection of who Jesus is. And so Jesus, in talking about and heading to his death, is giving us this picture that all of humanity is split into one of two camps. Either you believe in the Son of God, you believe that he came sinless, that he took on your sin, that he was separated from God, that he died, was entered into the grave, that God raised him from the dead to overcome sin and death, and that he sits and reigns high and exalted forevermore. Or you reject it. And in so rejecting, we recognize that you refuse the love of God, you refuse the gift of God in the Son, you refuse the forgiveness of his sins. This morning, what we have an opportunity to do in the Lord's Supper is to zero in on that suffering, to zero in on that sacrifice, to look carefully at ourselves and our union with Jesus and his sacrifice. You see, this morning, the Lord's Supper is split into two elements. We have the bread and we have the cup. And the bread is meant to symbolize his body and the cup is blood. And the scripture tells us his body was given for us, for the sacrifice uh, to God for our sins, and his blood was poured out on our behalf to cover us from all iniquity, from all of our sins, from all of our wrongdoing. And so as we prepare to take the first two of these elements, let us begin to turn our minds, our thoughts, and our hearts on the sacrifice of Jesus, his body which was given to us, the sacrifice for sins, the forgiveness of sins of many, all who would believe in Jesus. Jesus gives us this picture here. We recognize that some of us miss it. Some of us miss it on rationality. Some of us miss, miss it on mysticism and spirituality. But in the middle is this crystal clear teaching of Jesus. Come to me. Receive my body and receive the forgiveness of sins. Let us focus on our union with God as the deacons are passing out the first of the two elements. And as you receive them, if you would take and hold them, and then after all have received, we'll take them together at the end. Reading out of Matthew 26. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Let's all turn our hearts again towards God and corporate worship. Let me ask you to stand. As we pick this passage back up, we recognize that Jesus has just uttered this really interesting teaching that the judgment's coming, the rule of the world is going to be cast out. But what he does next is really point back to what he had just talked about in verse 24, this kind of revealing or discussion of his coming death. Look what he says here in verse 32. He says, and when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. 
Verse 33 goes on to say that he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So interpretively, we get into this and we understand a couple of different things are at work here. One is that he looks at it and he says, when I am lifted up, and we say, okay, verse 33 says he said this to indicate the type of death that he was going to die. And so being on the other side of the cross, we look at it and say, what he's talking about here, this whole idea of being lifted up is centered on, localized on the cross, this cross event. Jesus is lifted up from the ground, placed on the cross. And on the cross, he died. And so we understand it in some sense in that. But moving from the realm of just this physical expression, there's also something else at work here. And so this, this is really holding kind of a two-fold interpretation for us. In John 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus makes a link to Numbers 21. In making this link to Numbers 21 where the Israelites are making their way across the Exodus. They're all bitten by a snake, and God instructs Moses. He says, take, craft a snake out of bronze, put it on a staff, and everybody that looks at it will be safe. They'll be healed, in essence. You can go read Numbers 21 later. And Jesus references it in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And he says that I am like that. I will be lifted up. The Son of Man will be lifted up. And here again, he comes back to this same thing. He's drawing on and teaching the disciples, you can imagine being one of the disciples and hearing this and saying, what is he always talking about being lifted up? This makes no sense to us. We don't get it. Then after the cross event, Jesus shows back up and they say, now we understand. You see, in some sense, us being on the other side of the cross, we view the comments of Jesus, the statements of Jesus, not through this dimly lit glass, but we view it through the lens of Scripture, seeing the whole picture of how all this thing is worked together and how all this is met out. And so we see it, him being lifted up, and we, we center on it too closely with the cross. And because of that, we miss his exaltation. And so we're tempted to read this and say that it's Jesus being lifted up on the cross that's drawing all people to himself. You see, it's Jesus being lifted up on the cross that allows humanity to come to himself. The fact that up on that cross, he took on your sin, that he took on the death that you should have died, he took on the punishment that should have been yours, he took on the punishment that should have been mine. All of my pride, all of my idolatry, all of my pursuits of goodness, all of the things that kept me far from God, trying to please my parents, trying to live a life that was pleasing to those around me, all of these things that I had kind of created my own understanding, my codified salvation that were weak, paltry, and ineffectual, could not produce salvation in me. I was far removed, disinterested in God, but really only interested in being good and being seen as good by those around me. And when he's lifted up on that cross, he takes all of that upon himself. All the suffering, all of the pain, all of the anger took all of that upon himself for me, for you, for your spouse, for your children, for the person on the street, for the homeless guy you pass and you consider of no worth, no value. He died for him. He died for the opinions you hold of him, for your hard heart, for your lack of motivation, for your lack of love for him. He died for all of these things. And in that, he beckons you come. But what truly draws humanity to himself is his exaltation. You see that he merely died for someone 
spares us, but that he overcame death in being exalted and being lifted up and being raised up from the dead and exalted to the right hands of God. He overcame sin and death, and in so doing, he opens up the gates of heaven, and he bids you come. He bids you come. But scripture tells us, and we know that the the gate is narrow, and few are those who will come to him. And at the height of our ability to self-deceive, there are many of us who presume that God is well-pleased in our kindness, God is well-pleased in our goodness, God is well-pleased in our southern hospitality. We always open the doors for people. I never wear a hat inside, and anytime I spit indoors, it's in one of those cups where you can't see inside it. And so we think somehow that being polite, being, being kind, having manners wins God to our side. I don't burp in front of my wife. I always put the lid of the toilet seat down. God is well-pleased in these things. In all these things, we are self-deceived. In all these things, all the ways we might metric our good behavior, all the ways you might count your good behavior, God looks at all those things and he counts them as baggage and loss. But he extends to you grace, love, and mercy in the person of Jesus. And it's in the person of Jesus, him exalted, him lifted high by God the Father that we are able to come and that he draws us to himself. So Jesus lays out this message. Jesus lays out this message to the Greeks, to the religious followers, to the marginally interested, to the, to the religiously confused. He lays out this message to them. And do you know what their response is? But this isn't what we thought. This has to be wrong. This doesn't sound like the good news that we anticipated. This, come on now. <laughs> he tells them, What's going to happen? He tells them how he's going to die for them, and they don't understand it, and they poke holes at the inadequacies of his explanation for living up to their expectation. So the crowd answered him, verse 34, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And so they come to him in essence and say, you describe a Messiah, you describe a Christ that is wholly different than anything we've ever heard, and we don't accept it. We don't accept it. All of, all of our lineage, all of our family, all of our training, all of our upbringing has pointed us to an understanding that what you say is rubbish. It's trash, it's worthless, it has no value because it violates what we expect, what we understand to be true. You see, fragrant within their minds are passages like Psalm 89, 35 through 37, where we read, Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon it shall be established for forever. So they understood and they, they internalized and, and they banked on, in some sense, their understanding of a Messiah figure who would come and he would usher in a reign that would be uninterrupted. And so for someone to come on the scene and say that the way that I'm going to come about, the way that we're going to bring this thing about is through my death, it's unacceptable. It violated their expectation. It violated the way that their parents, their grandparents, all those before them, it violated all of these things. And so since it violated their code of understanding, they refused to accept Jesus. Can I tell you, those people still exist today. And some of us are among them. Because we come to Jesus and he says, 
you have to serve me, you have to follow me, you have to die to yourself to live for me. We say that's too much, that violates my sense of autonomy, that violates what it is to be an American, that violates what it is to be educated, that violates all these things. It's my money in the bank, it's my this, it's my that. And he says, lay it all down at my feet and come and follow me. We find ourselves not caught up in in religious baggage and heritage baggage, but we find ourselves caught up in the baggage of all those things we want for ourselves. You see, they missed it. They had a a very particular understanding manifestation of how these things were going to work out, and they missed it. They were so focused on the everlasting kingdom that they missed Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 1 through 6 says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And there's this real apt description of all of us in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We all pursued our own course. We all pursued our own directions. But what we see in Jesus is that God laid all of those things on him. And in laying all those things on him, he calls us to abandon our pursuits, to abandon what we would make of our life, and to passionately pursue Jesus. Amen? calls us into to live these lives of reckless abandon who, who, who would not say, who would dare not say, my life's not turning out the way that I would have it, but instead would submit our lives to God at his feet and say, God, how would you have it? How would you make my life? How would you have me to live my life? How would you have me to spend my money, to spend my time? Where would you have my family and I to live? Where would you have my family and I to go? Who would you have me and my family to speak to? What would you have me and my family to do? How might we live out a bold expression of Christianity? How might we submit ourselves to you in the exaltation of your kingdom that your name might be glorified? It's counterintuitive to everything we encounter. You want to graduate from high school because you need a degree. You want to go to college because you want to get a job. You want to get an advanced degree because now a master's is yesterday's bachelor's. Now you want to get a PhD because the PhD is what the master's used to be. You want to get this job. You want to live in this city. You want to live in this street. You want to drive this far from your house. You want this, your 401k to be here. You want to have this much life insurance. You want to have this much uh, free time. You want to have this much vacation. All these things our society calls and beckons to. Can I tell you that some of those things are good? We should absolutely provide for our family with life insurance. We should absolutely work hard to provide for our family. We should absolutely pursue some of these things. But our pursuit of them always, hear me on this, always got to be in submission to God and what he desires for us. When we conflate our desires with God's will, we run into the rocks of our own depravity. 
Our pursuit needs to be God and his glory, not us and our comfort. And that is deadly and devastating. It's an uncomfortable prayer. And it's an even more uncomfortable life. But that is the life that he calls us to live. Now look what he says here. He doesn't want them to miss this opportunity. So bringing back into the crowd, Jesus responds and and, and Jesus, I, I try and follow Jesus in this, and many of the times you guys ask me questions and I answer a different question. Just, just know that I'm trying to be a disciple of Jesus. They've asked him, who is this son of man? And Jesus turns and he says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Clearly, not answering their question, but a better question. He says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. John uses the word walk much like the Apostle Paul does, walk to describe this kind of course or manner of life, the way we live. And so what he calls them to do is not just merely to start walking one direction, but to allow the overall trajectory of their lives, the manner in which they live, to be such that they are found to be embodied, invested, united in this light. And so Jesus' word to them is it's only for a little while longer. And of course, he's pointing at the brevity of his ministry, and this would be Jesus' last public appearance before his crucifixion, before his trial and crucifixion in the Gospel of John. So he's entreating with them and begging them, and he wants them to hear this, and so he calls them, in some sense, to invest themselves in Jesus. Walk while you have the light. Some of you have been dating church a long time. You've been dating God for a long time. You've been investing yourselves in, in kind of staying on the fray in these things. None of us know how much longer we have. None of us know if tomorrow we'll wake up. None of us know if tomorrow a giant meteor will fall on your home. You're like a fool trying to walk across Wesley. Don't do that. That's just, that's just, that's just tempting the fates. Don't do that. It's Texas. People don't walk here anyway. What's wrong with you? You've been dating God. You've not been submitting yourselves to him. You've been staving off and thinking, I've still got more time. I've still got more time. I remember I was watching a, a, TV, episode, a TV episode of the show Wings. I lived in Europe. All we ever got were American reruns. So it might be the worst show in the world, but I've seen every episode. And so uh, watching an episode of it, and the pilot gets off the plane, and he, he walks into the hangar, and he says... Man, I've got this whole God thing figured out. And his brother says, really? He says, apparently, all you have to do is right before you die, say, forgive me. This is awesome. We can do whatever we want to do. You can live however you want to live. And all you have to do at the end of it is say, God, would you forgive me? And everything is washed away. This should be their selling line. You can do whatever you want. And at the end, you just say, sorry. None of us know how long we have. And clearly God doesn't work this way. He's looking at the inward intention of your heart. And some of you, he has been drawing you. He's been drawing you for some time. He's been seeking you. He's pointing at his exaltation. He points to the sacrifice that he made for you on the cross. And he beckons you, come, quit waiting and come. For those of you in this room who are faithful followers of Jesus, God has laid on your heart someone to go and to share the gospel with. But you keep thinking, I've got longer, I've got more time, I can wait. Next time we get together for a family reunion, the next time the situation's perfect, in fact, the next solar eclipse when Jupiter's just kind of right there and, and I can see these things and the North Star's right here and my clock hits this number, whoo, I'm going to make a note to speak to them the next day. This is kind of where a lot of us live. 
It says the time is short. Walk while you have the light. Be urgent in receiving and urgent in communicating. Look at the way Jesus continues on, verse 47. He says, if anyone hears these words and does not keep them, that'd be verse 44. That's next time. Look what he says here. Back up. Verse 35. The light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. And look what he says. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. You walk into a room, it's pitch black. You're unfamiliar with the room. You have no idea where you're going. And so he points to the person who living in spiritual darkness doesn't know. Much like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he shows up at night, night more of a testimony to the state of affairs in Nicodemus' heart. And so Jesus is speaking to him, drawing him, and telling him the importance of what it is to be born again. Some of us this morning were dwelling in darkness. You need to cry out to Jesus for direction. You cry out to God for direction. And in the midst of that cry, God will come and he will save you. Verse 36, let's wrap this up. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. The call is absolutely clear from Jesus' word to your ears this morning. The light is here in the word of Jesus, and he is calling on us to believe. He is calling on us to surrender our lives. He's calling on us to commit ourselves to him. For some of us this morning, the, the plan, the approach is very clear for us. We need to submit our lives to Jesus, to cry out to him for salvation, that he might come in and save us. And he is faithful and true. And be it in this service or at some point later, we would love to talk to you and have a longer conversation with you about the gospel and what it is to live as a son of light. But let me just say a word to those of you who have already surrendered your lives. Look at what he says. To be a son, to be a son in some sense is to obey, to obey the light. For many of us, we're, we like the fact that there's a small amount of light dwelling in us keeping us safe and lighting the way, but we treat our relationship with Jesus like a flashlight we turn off and on in times of need. Can I tell you that if this is how you approach your relationship with Jesus, this is likely an indication that you don't actually have a saving relationship with Jesus. You've got this Duracell Jesus. He's kind of always there to, always there to light the way, but never really there to change your heart. And what that's an indication of for you is that you need to get right with God. God's not good for saving you in situations. He's good for saving your life to eternity. There's a distinct difference. So as we prepare to take the second of the two elements, we recognize the sacrifice of Jesus for us. His body has been given for us. We recognize, too, that his blood has been poured out for us. And then in pouring out his blood for us, we center on, we focus on the fact that our sins have been covered and atoned for. This morning as we pass out the cup as the deacons are passing it out would you take and hold and reflect upon the sacrifice of Jesus and how his blood has covered your sins and what it means for some of us to submit ourselves that we may become children of the light and what it means for others of us to walk as children of the light reading again out of Matthew 26 Verse 27 says, And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
Friends, as we move into a time of application response, in whatever way God has spoken to you this morning, whatever way he's laid the truth of his text on your heart, as we move into this next section of our service, we have an opportunity for you to respond. And so let me ask you to stand as we invite God to move in our midst and that we be faithful and true to respond to him.